0: You might have to live a double life. And boy, that's really hard. That's really hard to do because you're always afraid that they'll find out. But what you need to do, uh, or what uh, I think we should do if your parents are disapproving, is look for your validation elsewhere.
1: Whether you're a professional dancer or just started falling in love with ballet dance, welcome to the Ballet Dance Live During the COVID-19 crisis, Gelina's BDE is donating class content by Gelina to help students and teachers to transition to the online platforms, hoping that these classes would help them survive in these uncertain times and keep their dance community thriving. For more information, search for hashtag or write to info at I will include both hashtag and email to the show notes of this episode so you can find them easily there. Hello everyone! How are you doing? How's it going? I know that you have been waiting for this interview for such a long time and I uh, feel we should have done uh, this episode way earlier because our today's guest Artemis Murat. She's absolutely amazing and her contributions to the ballad dance uh, community and the development and uh, spreading awareness about baladins and all its aspects. It's beyond any descriptions, but. At least let me try (laughs) to properly introduce and just give a full credit. So as much as I can. Artemis Murad has been dancing, teaching and researching dance history in the United States and abroad for over 40 years. She's of Greek and uh, Turkish descent and she took ballet dance, her passion to ballet dance actually to academical uh, world. Her research is used by Egyptian universities, the Middle Eastern Institute in Washington, D.C., and the Library for Performing Arts in New York. She has lectured, taught, and performed for Cornell University and Princeton University, National Public Radio, and Voice of America. Artemis, uh, has collected, uh, numerous antique pictures of women and dancers from north africa and middle east and of roma throughout the world and her collection is one of the largest in the united states and some illustrations has been used by international encyclopedia of dance the smithsonian institute the largest Romani museum in the world in the czech republic the romany archives at the university of texas collected by Ian Hancock and all major Middle Eastern dance publications and several books. Artemis is listed in the International Dance Council, who is who of dance? Her photograph can be found in the International Encyclopedia of Dance under the listing for Dancer Duventry, Baladance which is produced by Oxford University Press. And she has won the Ethnic Dance of the Year Award presented by International Academy of Middle Eastern Dance, as well as the most popular ethnic dance award from the Greed Magazine twice. Also, Artemis has won the Lifetime Achievement Award. There has been so many topics and questions on my mind that I was like so excited to talk and see which direction our conversation will flow. Because as you know, this podcast is a free flow conversations. We are not having any prepared scripted questions or answers for you here, guys. But As usual, with such a amazing and talented and absolutely astonishing guests, the conversation always took uh, the most unexpected and surprising turn. And I'm so happy it actually did because uh, uh, we not only talked about some of her research, specifically in the area of Turkish Oriental and Turkish uh, Balladin style and uh, Roma style as well, but we also talk just about life. Life as a dancer, and uh, she has forty years of experience under her belt. Not only performing uh, or teaching, but also mentoring and helping dancers to go through different uh, situations in their life, different stages of their life. So not only about dance technique or history research, but even about some real day-to-day things that happen in life and uh, some situations that can occur specifically in belly dance life. So, I'm really very excited to uh, finally publish, release this uh, interview, this episode. I'm pretty sure it will be very inspiring and uplifting for you. And uh, as usual, I hope to hear back from you, your feedback, and whenever you are uh, sharing uh, any thoughts, uh, or, or comments on social media or, uh, Don't forget to tag me as well as our guests on your Insta stories on Facebook or wherever, whichever platforms you're using. We always love to hear back from you. And this is one of the greatest uh, rewards for uh, me as a host, but also for our guests who invested their time. And uh, uh, trust me, absolutely all of them has that back thought like, Oh my God, I hope people will love (laughs) what I have to share. So never forget to, uh, uh, share back and just say how uh, how much you appreciate uh, their time and them sharing their experience with you. On this note, let's dive in. Hello, dear Artemis. I'm so happy to host you at the Bella Dance Live podcast. I think... Kind of feel we should have i should have done it way earlier (laughs) because you have so many uh, contributions to the belly community but i am happy that we are doing it right now so welcome to the project and thank you for uh, joining us today and uh, how's it
0: uh going so far (laughs) well thank you for inviting me and uh things are going really well considering There's uh, the COVID-19 and we're all on lockdown here. But um, I really think it's possible for us to thrive even Mm -hmm. better than just to survive during these extraordinary times. So so things are going quite well here. Thank you. Mm, I really
1: love uh, uh, your approach, like not just surviving, but actually thriving. That's uh, a really cool and uh, positive note that definitely
0: many of us need to hear right now. <laughs> I know. It's really... You, you have to monitor how much negativity you absorb, I, I believe. And so uh, watching the news all the time can be detrimental. And, I mean, we have to know what's going on. We have to watch the news some of the time. But watching all the time, it becomes um, uh, unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And And I also feel like for m- most of us, our... Ancestors had it a lot worse than we do, and so we we should take heart in the fact that we come from survivors and we come from sturdy stock.
1: Mm, absolutely loved it, and absolutely agree. Well, uh, talking about uh, ancestors, <laughs> I would. Um, love actually to uh go back in time a uh, little have a little time traveling right now and actually go back not that uh, much in time to our ancestors but just to the beginning of your uh, dance story uh can you tell us please uh i know that you are of greek and turkish descent but uh if i researched correctly you actually were born in usa right
0: yes My father's uh, family, side of the family, are Greeks from Turkey, and they were there for over a thousand years. So they are actually Middle Eastern Greeks. They're not European Greeks, and there's a difference. Uh, And my mother's side of the family are Americans. But I was born in Washington, D.C., in an army hospital,
1: And how did your uh, roots, uh, like uh, cultural roots, did they influence your upbringing in the USA? Or was it something that you reconnected to later in your life?
0: I thought that everybody had one set of grandparents who could not speak English. And I didn't really realize that that wasn't true until... I was in junior high school, Uh, so I was very much surrounded by um, my parents' parents, Uh, so we would go to Weirton, West Virginia, which is where the Greeks lived, and uh, I was submerged in that world. And then we would uh, go visit my mother's um, relatives, who were all over in the United States, but mostly in New York and Alabama. And we were immersed in that world. Um, But as a belly dancer, I didn't start dancing until I was 21. The first dancers that I remember seeing, except for just people dancing in... Uh, social party dancing at family get-togethers. But the first dancers that I remember seeing uh, was in Istanbul at a at a party, and they were Romani women who were dancing, and I was absolutely smitten. And then the first actual belly dance show I saw with a professional dancer in an oriental costume was... Um, was in Washington, D.C. and I was 21 years old and I thought, oh, I want to do that dance and I want to do it on that stage. And so I was just obsessed and I started studying the dance and I, I was a fanatic about practicing two hours a day every day and a couple, about two and a half years later, I actually did get a gig in that restaurant and I was awful. I was so awful. You know, I was young and I was cute and I had a lot of enthusiasm. And, you know, clearly I wasn't really ready to be on the stage, but that was how I started. And then I had to play catch up a a lot. But um, my family, uh, my Greek family were not in favor of my dancing. And I kept it a secret from them for a while. And then when they found out, they really didn't like it. So that that was a tough hurdle. But I think a lot of people who have Middle Eastern backgrounds um, in their families do have that problem.
1: Mm. And did it change uh, with time? Uh, because you took ballet dance not just as a hobby. In future uh, upcoming years, you took it as your profession too. Uh, so if you don't mind sharing a little bit, because I know a lot of dancers who are uh, passionate in this art form and want to take it more serious, uh, they sometimes experience some um tension or misunderstanding not understanding with their families uh so if you don't mind sharing a little bit and maybe giving a couple tips if you have or some suggestions for dancers who may be in that situation right now too sure
0: um well my father was a a pretty liberal man. He was a psychiatrist. And uh, he uh, worked a lot with young people. And he was a very kind and compassionate man. And he was, uh, he, he after he saw me dancing, and he realized how, how difficult it is uh, to do, uh, his his way of approving of the dance was to tell me, "Well, it'll keep you fit all your life," <laughs> and I was so delighted to hear him say that. Um, now, his his uh, brothers and sisters, my uncles and aunts, that took a little bit more convincing, but eventually um, most of them uh, came came around to when they realized that I was really serious about it. And I've been dancing almost 50 years now. So they um, they realized that really is who I am. And so that was easier. I did have one uncle who I dearly loved, uh, who slapped me when he found out that I was dancing. And he'd never ever done anything like that. And, and I, I, I loved him so much. But he was quite a bit older, and I, they did a newspaper article about me in town, and and I was afraid he was going to see it because it had my uh, Artemis Murat, so it was my last name, and I thought, oh, my God, he's going to see it, and then he's going to know, so I thought I'd better tell him anyway. And when I told him, he just reacted. It was a nature jerk -jerk reaction. And he, he just slapped me and he said, what you work in nightclubs, dirty people, dirty business, dirty people. And I was so upset. And I said, well, I'm not a bad person. And I, I, Oh, I was crying. And then I left the house and he didn't, we didn't actually speak to each other. Um, for two years. And then my aunt called me and said, you need to come to our house. And I said, okay. And I loved my aunt very much. And she stood us up in front of each other. And she said, now you talk. And I looked at him and I said, I'm really sorry, but I I haven't done anything wrong. And he said, oh, I'm really sorry, too. And then we collapsed in each other's arms and we were hugging and kissing. And and everything was fine after that. So um, that's how that uh, side of the family was dealing with it. On my mother's side of the family, uh, being American... Um, She really didn't understand the dance, except she saw it from the uh, perspective of, oh, people just think it's like stripping. And my mother was a very dignified lady, and she didn't want people thinking of her daughter that way. And so uh, for most of my career, she told people that I was a folk dance teacher, and that was a little bit more... Acceptable to her, and then one day, and it was and it was sad for me too because she. I really kept thinking, well, if I just got good enough, then she would understand that it's an art form. Or oh, if I just got famous enough, then she would respect that. You know, it's it's an art form, and that I've I've gotten uh, far in my in my field. And but she really. She didn't understand, and then I guess she was in her uh, middle 80s, and I had been dancing at least 40, over 40 years by that point, and I just accepted it, that she was never really going to understand it. And I, um, I received the kind of validation that I needed from other women, which I'll talk about in a minute in a way that can, I think, help other struggling dancers. Um, so we were in London in a hotel room and I was preparing for a workshop and I was, uh, had headphones on and I was uh, practicing a part of a combination over and over and over again. And I didn't realize she was watching me. And that night, we went to a, a concert and we had to sit at a table with other people. And there was a Lebanese family there and um, the, the father was asked, oh, what do you do for a living? And what do you do for a living? And when he got to me, I kind of cringed because I thought, oh, here it goes. Uh, um, I I often will just tell people I'm a journalist, if especially Middle Eastern people, uh, because some, if you tell them you're a dancer, then they have their stereotypes about it, too. So I, before I could even draw a breath to respond, my mother said, my daughter is a choreographer. And she teaches people all over the world. And I was just flabbergasted because uh, it's like she got it she got it after all all these years and I was so happy because then from that point on she wanted to come to my shows and and she understood that how much goes into being a dancer so that worked out very nicely in the end well I literally have a goosebumps right now (laughs) Thank you so
1: much uh, for sharing it. And uh, uh, I can only imagine like that it's a tough situation and also can imagine like it's a vulnerable story to share. But thank you so much for sharing because I uh, kind of feel that for so many people it can be so inspiring to hear that uh, even professional dancers who achieved so much in their career might have had uh such issues and difficulties in the beginning with their own family where the people who we expect to support us on our goals and dreams and i know it can be very tough so thank you so much for sharing and it just shows uh, and maybe inspires someone to also believe now that with our close ones and beloved ones, we can still love each other, even if you don't maybe understand each other, share the same uh, life views or the same beliefs or the same passions. Um, and I know that you have a second part of the story that you just mentioned, that you uh, had uh, maybe from some other women you received that support that you were really hoping to receive from your mother. But I want also to... um ask uh just i had one uh one thought right now do you feel that that uh resistance let's say from your family maybe that played a role in pushing you in your development even further because you took belly dance not just as a performance or teaching career you took it to academic world too, and you have so many researchers, you have so many awards and acknowledgments specifically for your research and contribution to the community and uh, uh, to the um, researching and showcasing the culture. Do you think looking back uh, now uh, to those years that maybe that also played some role in you trying to kind of explain or prove your family why you're doing it? Do you, do you connect these things now?
0: Oh, that's such a great question. I, I hadn't really thought about it till you brought it up now, but I, I think that's, that it did. It, it did push me. Um, I've always loved history, and um, I was lucky that I got to travel a lot as a child with my parents, and um, my mother always said that she w- wished she could have become an, uh, an archaeologist. So she, I, I got a great, uh, I inherited a great love of history, and um, uh, especially ancient history from my mom and from my dad. He always felt like, Culture was everything, and so if you understood the culture that people came from, then you would you you would understand them better. And he also felt like we're really not different at all, all of us. And so um, that helped me to feel um, open and welcoming towards other cultures and other cultural experiences. Um, I think that. You're absolutely right that um, when I wrote articles and I showed them to my parents, they were much more accepting of that, especially my mom, because that was academic and um, she and, and sort of a legitimate thing to do with my time. Um, I was doing research because I just love it and also... I researched Turkish dance a lot because um, there was a period of time when uh, the Turkish dance was not accepted in the belly dance world, and I knew that it had a history and a heritage all on its own. I didn't know what it was, but I was going to learn about it. And so I went to Turkey many, many times, and I did a lot of research so that I could prove to the... Uh, American belly dance world, that we had a right to be here. We were a legitimate branch of the tree. Um, so I had a mission uh, to, to, to to do that. And I also wanted to research a lot about Roma culture and Romani people because they... Um, th- Back in the beginning, in the belly dance world, people just thought, oh, I'll fluff up my hair, and I'll put a flower behind my ear, and I'll wear a full skirt, and I'll call it my gypsy dance. And I was like, no, you know, it really, it is a real dance, and they are real people, and they don't really even like that name. And And um, uh, learn the real one, and then if you want to fuse it with your fantasy or interpretive dance, that's okay, but don't call it authentic. And, you know, just it's all about how you label it. So that was another uh, big cause for me. Um, but if I could just back up for a second, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and talk about um, dancers who are struggling with their uh, family. Mm-hmm, a, absolutely. Career. Um, you really, you might see that. Uh, as a new dancer and um, you it will come from many directions it will come um, from your boyfriend who thinks it's really cool that he's dating a dancer but then if he wants to marry you uh, may want to try to control you and say well you know I don't want my wife as a dancer and and you can have a lot of flack about that. Sometimes you can get it from your brothers um, who are embarrassed because they feel like other people are seeing you as a sexual object. It can come from your sons when they become teenagers and maybe the kids at school are, are laughing about what their mom does. And it can come from your parents and your uncles and aunts and grandparents. And I, I think that there, there might be some situations, especially if you're um, Middle Eastern in, in your ethnicity, where you might have to live a double life. And, boy, that's really hard. That's really hard to do because you're always afraid that they'll find out. Um, and it can bring shame to the family. Um, but... Um what, what you need to do, uh, w- or what I think we should do if your parents are disapproving, um, is look for your validation elsewhere. And so I read a book, and I wish I could remember uh, who wrote it. It might have been um, um, Piccola Estes. Or I don't even know if I'm remembering her name correctly. But the book was talking about um, angel mothers and how life will give you your biological mother and she might not be able to give you everything that you need. In fact, she probably can't give you everything that you need. And so the, the universe or however, you know, whatever your religious uh, belief is about that, but the cosmos or fate will send you angel mothers. And so that could be um, a neighbor lady or an auntie or a co-worker uh, who is older and who sees your true self and who sees the light that shines from you when you're dancing. And um, they can give you the approval and the praise that you wish that you could have gotten but you you didn't get from your family and you may be never going to get from your family and so so if you feel like you need validation then go to them and i would also recommend that um, as young dancers um or even really at any stage in your dance career to seek out mentors because a mentor uh, has already forgotten more than you even know. And and so they can um, inspire you and um, encourage you and guide you. And so I, I mentor um, usually about 12 women um, at a time. Some of them I don't even talk to for a whole year. Some I talk to more often, but they know that if they're, in trouble they can come to me and that i'll always tell them the truth and so uh i i think that we all need mentors so
1: true i just uh, remember that they say even with our partners that uh those people who basically we choose to spend our life with that so it's our choice but even from our partners we cannot expect absolutely everything they cannot fulfill absolutely all roles uh in our lives, and uh, we don't need to put that pressure on them. The same applies even to our relatives, whom we don't choose. Like, we can't expect that everything we need we'll receive from that specific person, because they have their own beliefs, things, life, experience, and they may see things from different angle. And uh, I loved uh, how uh, you uh, brought the... uh, Title Angel Mother. <laughs> I was
0: thinking about my own ones on my path too right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think if you look back in your life, you'll you'll see that uh, you have been that angel mothers ha- have been sent to you, and uh, and and I think you're so wise in what you say about the, your life partner. We really can't expect them to be everything to us. And I don't think it's healthy to, to do that. Um, I think that it takes an extraordinary man to be married to a belly dancer because, um, they have to trust you and you come home late at night and, and you, um, there are a lot of men who are really attracted to you. And sometimes you work in places where, um, there are unsavory things that are going on and, and you travel a lot and you're away from them a lot. And so um, you have to have a really strong relationship with your uh, partner or your marriage isn't going, going to, to last. Um, but I have a lot of compassion for uh, the belly dance husbands <laughs> <laughs> out there uh, because it it isn't easy, you know. And being married to a, to a belly dancer Um, sometimes it gets really old. (laughs) I mean, we have a studio in my house and our house is always overrun with lots of women. And, and, um, one day the cable guy was here fixing our cable and there are all these beautiful women running around. And he looked at my husband and he said, what's going on here? (laughs) (laughs) And my husband said, oh, my, My wife has a belly dancing school in the house, and he goes, wow, man, that's really cool. And my husband looked at him, and he said, well, sometimes it gets a little old.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yeah, that's so, so funny. I also want to uh, forward a little bit into to continue on the topic about your passion in research and how you brought dance to also academic world, not only inspiring women in dance studios and mentoring them, but also... Uh, highlighting and uh, researching more information about this dance and one of the subjects that i think is absolutely fascinating is uh the dance movement therapy which you dedicated your postgraduate work and uh, the research that was used in many uh, other researchers afterwards um by third parties, but can you tell a little bit about this concept of dance movement therapy and what exactly was the uh, subject and question that you dedicated
0: your research work back then? Oh, well, I studied dance movement therapy only for a brief period of time, Mm. so I've never been a dance movement therapist. I got uh, my master's degree in clinical psychology um, in the 70s, and then I got a social work degree um, in the early 90s, a master's in social work, and became a licensed clinical social worker. Um, So I I can't really speak about dance movement therapy, um, but the research that that i did um the my my master's thesis was about androgyny and about how um it it was a really new concept back then because men were supposed to be manly men and women were supposed to be feminine women and and um uh and it was doing a lot of disservice we've realized now is that, gosh, well, wow, men can't be the strong ones all the time. And women are really strong and, and that in a marriage, uh, you have to be interdependent. You can't just have the woman being dependent on the man and, um, and, and his income. I mean, this is quite a long time ago. Uh, so things have changed so much now. So, uh, uh that was my research. Uh, in uh, the academic world when I was in school that um, I, I believed that dance um, would help women to become more androgynous because we would become more, uh, more empowered um, by the powerful um, um, movement vocabulary of dance and, uh, and also about being a, the life of a, of a dancer, um, the the other the bulk of my research I mean that was a master's thesis that has long since been forgotten but um, um, my research on um, the ancient sacred dances of Egypt and Greece and um, Rome and um, uh, the, my research about the history of Turkish dance and and my research about um, um, the Romani people and the racism and the struggles that they have. Um, those have all been published in some of the uh, dance magazines. And also um, I've been interviewed uh, out, outside of the dance world about those things. And I also wrote about uh, many articles, um, uh, some were about um, ethics in dancing and um, the the dancer's dilemma and 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 about uh, dancers being mean to each other. I had an article called "Criticism: The Cloaked Compliment" about how some dancers are mean to you because they're really jealous, and um, uh, about how to negotiate with uh, nightclub owners and not. Uh, be cheated. And so uh, those are the kinds of things that I've written about.
1: That's quite a, a broad range of different topics that you <laughs> contributed and researched to. That's so awesome. Uh, but I also know that you kind of uh, go with um, the philosophy of uh, heart, God, soul, dancer. <laughs> Can you tell a little bit more about that? What's, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, I think that um, when when a person becomes a dancer, if, if they're just an, an intellectual dancer and they see the pursuit of dance as a, um, a technical thing only, um, they can be uh, an... An absolutely flawless technician. Um, But on the stage, they're going to look like an ice queen. And an audience would much 10,000 times more, excuse me, prefer to watch a dancer who is uh, dancing from the heart and who is joyful and maybe a little less technically proficient. Um, than someone who's technically perfect but has no feeling and no connection, no emotional connection, to um, to the music and to the the movement. So, uh, so that's that's what I'm referring to. And
1: uh, how to uh, how for dancers they can uh, maintain that authenticity in their emotions because uh, i'm also referring to your experience as a mentorship because i'm pretty sure you probably mentor some uh professional dancers too and uh For some of uh, dancers, once dance becomes the job and it becomes a regular thing, the shows, it can very easily skip in the emotion of being a routine and more like a mechanical thing. Like, oh, I have to do it. I'm doing, like, I'm performing, I'm doing this things uh uh, more like on automatic (laughs) mode rather than actually feeling it have you ever encountered any dancers that you uh mentored dealing with this kind of uh, things and how they can possibly regain their enthusiasm uh, and uh, true connection to the uh, dance
0: and the joy of the moment i think that um Every dancer goes through that. If, if you're gigging a lot and you're working full time as a dancer, um, every dancer will sometimes be, oh, I have to go do a show tonight and I really just <laughs> want to stay home and, and put on my flannel nightgown and my fuzzy slippers and watch a movie. Um, um, and then you're on the stage and you're, you're trying really hard to be authentic, and and then your mind goes, to, oh darn, I forgot to buy the cat food. Uh, so I think we all have um, our moments when um, it's a um, it's a job, and it is a it's a difficult job, it's a hard job, and and you're you're not in sync with the rest of the world a lot because you work nights, and um, so you get home at three in the morning and you sleep until noon. And um, I, I think that it's very easy to to burn out. Um, now, the people who I mentor are all professional dancers uh, or have the potential to be professional dancers. And like they're almost there. And uh, I'm, I'm attracted to working with them because they have the heart and so um, when it uh, and not, I mean, not everybody's got the heart, but a lot of people love the dance and they're drawn to it because it gives them joy. Um, but when you're dancing a lot or when other dancers are mean to you or when the gigs dry up, it's really hard to keep um Keep your passion going for it. So uh, there are some things that I recommend to people. And um, one of them is, is to learn a different kind of dance, to start right from the beginning as a baby beginner dancer with a completely different genre. And sometimes that can really um, excite you and teach you what it feels like to and remind you of what it felt like in the beginning when you were all on fire about it. Um, I also sometimes recommend that people just take a break from dance and um, and and not dance for six months or even a year or so. And I don't I I say don't sell your costumes or any of that, but just stop dancing and uh, see how you miss it. And then when you go back into the dance, you will find your joy again. And that works for a, a lot of people. I would also recommend that if you can possibly swing it financially, is that um, you work less. If you feel like you're getting burned out, that you work work less as a dancer and um cultivate the ability to make money doing something else. So then you don't have to work all the time in order to pay your bills. Um, you've, you've got a steady paycheck coming from something else. So then you can take the, the jobs that you, that you like and that you want and that you feel enthusiastic about.
1: Mm. Did uh, you personally, in your uh, almost 50-year dance career, did you experience uh, any kind of burnout? Or or you were one of the lucky dancers who had a long-time career and avoided this aspect uh, of this uh, uh, not only art, but job? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, Well, I I think uh, there certainly have been times um, when I was dancing seven nights a week that, that I, uh, it was hard to, be, to stay enthusiastic about it. But I also, I knew that most of the time, once my foot hit the stage, that the, the music would carry me. And, and that's especially true when you're going through bad times in your life. Um, when maybe nothing is going right in your world, but you know that when your foot hits the stage, the music will come inside of you and flow through you and um, it will carry you through. And that's the one 30 minutes or 20 minutes of your entire day when everything is right and everything is falling into place. That's part of the magic of dance. uh, uh, I think, but, um, I did have to stop dancing when I was a couple times in my life. Um, and um, once was um, when I was in graduate school and I, um, for, for my social work degree, and I just, there wasn't time to dance and do this too. And another time was when I was taking care of my mom who um moved in with us because she couldn't live alone and she really needed care all the time and so i couldn't i i mean i still taught some workshops but i and my my weekly class but i couldn't uh for a year i i couldn't accept any workshop jobs because i didn't i didn't know if um I would be able to fulfill my responsibilities, and I was afraid I'd have to cancel, and I didn't want to cancel, so I just didn't accept any jobs. And so that wasn't from burnout, but that was from circumstance. And I pined for the dance, and uh, both times when I had to stop dancing, I felt very depressed and very disconnected from my body and was not... um, Not myself and so and my husband will sometimes say to me why don't you go in the studio and dance (laughs) Ah. (laughs) my mood needs a lift or or if I if I'm feeling stressed or or tense because he he knows it's like magic it's magical medicine for me
1: Mm, that's so beautiful to have such a support uh, from your partner uh, and uh, been so in tune with your mood and
0: needs. <laughs> yes, and and the thing is that when when you leave the dance, um, if you have to because you have a baby or you move or whatever reason, what you'll find when you go back to it, I always say that the dance is a patient muse, and she will wait for you, and um, without judgment, and so. Some people quit dancing for 20 years and they come back to it. Some people have to for a year for one reason or another. But um, what you will find is that you'll fall in love with the dance again. You'll remember why you fell in love with it in the first place. And you will get your joy back. Um, The other side of that is that if you do start dancing again after you haven't danced for a while, and all you can think of is, Oh, this is why I got burned out in the first place, and I hate the club scene, and and the other dancers are mean in this town, or whatever. Um, You know, then you might come to the conclusion that um, it's time to hang up your zills and it's time to not dance anymore. Or it's time to find another way to have dance in your life that isn't connected to club work.
1: Yeah, so true, and uh, uh, there is also expression, like, once you're a dancer, you're a dancer forever, (laughs) which probably means, refers, like, you're either, um, if you really felt like you were a dancer, and that's your calling, or passion, not necessarily calling, but just a passion, no matter how much time will pass, you will always want to come back, and you will find, again, the joy, and um, peace, and... uh, uh, celebration in this activity and not something that puts you down, des- definitely. Uh, you know, like thinking about all your research and the topics that you uh, kind of specialize in, it's very difficult for me even to think, okay, which exact <laughs> topic to choose and forward our uh, conversation to. But one thing that you mentioned earlier, and I really definitely want to dig in more is you mentioned that one of your uh, goals and one of your uh, like very important things for you was uh, to prove that Turkish ballet dance has a place uh, to play to play a very important role in the ballet dance scene in general and that's why I also want to ask you, do you think that in those years, like let's say 40-50 years, did the appreciation of Turkish belly dance, uh, did it change, did it grow, or did it got even less than it was before Then you were just starting your research um, and trying to showcase this beautiful branch of uh, belly dance art form?
0: Well, when I started dancing in the 70s, um, people didn't know one type of belly dance from another. We just studied with anybody that we could uh, learn from and um, there weren't a lot of teachers back then and we would just go see dancers and we would observe their steps and then try to imitate them. And um, this was uh, the what people call American cabaret style or AMCAB. And I really prefer the expression that I coined for it, which is vintage oriental, um, because um, this was a dance that was born in the nightclubs uh, in America, Um, where you had musicians who were from all different countries and you had customers in the same club from all different countries. And so you had to be able to dance to Arabic music and Greek music and Turkish music if you wanted to have a job. And then in the 80s, um, uh, people started going to the Middle East and actually researching The dance, and lo and behold, they discovered, oh wow, the dance in Egypt looks a lot different from vintage Oriental. And so, um, and there, there were some magazines, actual paper magazines, that um, came into being, and uh, people started writing articles about the dance. Um, And so, they brought back to America what they learned about Egyptian style. And um, how it was different, and unfortunately, um, um, well, fortunately and unfortunately, it was fortunate because it was it is a beautiful, authentic style of dance, and uh, lots of people learned it authentically then, um, and and so that added so much to our uh, belly dance culture in America. Um, but the part about it that wasn't good was that uh people became so enamored with it that there was a lot of snobbery about the dance and so uh people were saying well there are only two types of oriental dance there's egyptian style and then there's everybody else who's wrong everybody else is wrong except egyptian style and so the american cabaret style dancers um, were left in the cold, and the Turkish style dancers were left in the cold, and um, and and this was devastating. And so, uh, in our area, uh, in the Washington D.C. area where I was living at the time, um, there were um, more Arabs and um, um, Middle Eastern people. Um, then and the clubs were more dominated by uh, uh, people from those regions, and the musicians were more likely to be from there. And so it was easier to get a job if you did Arabic st- styling. I'm not going to say Egyptian styling. I'm going to say Arabic styling because there was still a lot of Lebanese, uh, you know, brought into it. And then a lot of the vintage Oriental dancers. Um, like if they wanted, if they wanted to be respected and they wanted a gig, they had to convert to the Egyptian style of dance, and and a lot of them uh, just quit because they, it didn't resonate with them, and they were felt like um, they weren't respected. Um, but then there was the Turkish style, which um, uh, most of the people in the belly dance world were looking down on because the um, costumes were getting very scanty and um, uh, and and because people were um, so in love with the Egyptian and so that's when I decided oh no I'm this is wrong uh, because I know that my I had seen uh, Dance is part of my culture growing up. My grandfather, my grandmother would always just sing music and snap their fingers. And when they were rocking babies and when they were happy and when they were seeing their their friends and they put records on and dance. And I, I knew that um, there was a legitimate branch of the belly dance tree that was from Turkey and so I that's when I started going to Turkey and I started studying um, what it really was about and I took a lot of video footage and I bought videos uh, uh, VHS tapes actually I had to go to the pornography shops to buy them and because of that boy you want to empty out a pornography shop have a young woman walk in <laughs> and all these guys get all embarrassed that so they run out of the door. So it got to the point where the dealers in the shops would just meet me at the door and hand me the video that I was buying and I'd give them the money. So I wouldn't go in and chase away their customers. I didn't mean to chase their customers, but you know, <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> they would want to get caught. Right. Oh, yeah. so, um, I, um. I bought lots and lots and lots of, of music, and I went many times, and I came home, and I didn't listen to anything but Turkish music for two years, and my poor husband, I mean, he likes Turkish music, but it was a little too much of a good thing, and I just studied and studied and studied um, the minutiae of the footage that I took. And really, it was then that I was able to finally understand for myself what was Turkish Oriental dance, and how was it different, and why was it different. And so then I was really passionate about preserving it and about making sure that people understood that we had a right to to be here. And ironically, the thing that um that everybody made fun of the uh, being a turkish style dancer or being an abcab dancer or whatever back in the day that that actually my specializing in turkish dance was the thing that um, made me well known in the community uh, there were only 3 of us uh, uh, Dalia Karela, and Eva Cernik and, and and me that who were on the circuit teaching Uh, Turkish. And um, I mean, we were teaching other things, too. So then people started really waking up to what Turkish was. And um, we had to teach them that skirt dancing is not Turkish. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And and I love it and I do it and I teach it. But I but it's not Turkish. It's not from Turkey. Um, So we had to teach people what authentic turkish dance really was and all of a sudden people started appreciating it and and liking it um and people would come to me and they would say well i never really i wanted to be an oriental dancer but the egyptian is just doesn't really resonate with me but now watching you dance makes me feel like i've come home now and so that was really great so then there were there were a lot of and there was a newfound respect in our community for uh, Turkish dance. And we had to fight a lot of stereotypes, too, because people would take one look at those real sexy costumes and they would say, oh, uh, well, you know, that's that's not um, uh, art or, or whatever. I mean, they had all kinds of things to say about it. And um, they would argue about stupid things like, is she wearing panties under her skirt? And, and I'm just thinking, don't you have anything better to think about and talk about than that? And and um, so what if you see a lot of leg? You can learn her steps better that way. And so I used to buy my costumes in Turkey, and I would come home and I would make a skirt to go underneath them because I didn't want to show that much leg. But um, it it was the costuming was distracting people from seeing the art form. Um, and it was um, coloring the opinion of the art form for a lot of people. So then if you fast forward into today, what is happening, I would say in the last 10 years, maybe a little bit longer, um, there is uh, what I call Nouveau Turkish Oriental, and so what what I was teaching what Eva's teaching and um, um, all of that material up until about 10 years ago was classical classical Turkish but nouveau Turkish is an, is a new branch of the Turkish oriental dance tree and it involves I would say 40 percent of it is Turkish and 60 percent of it is the artist and what they're doing with um, their movement vocabulary. and yeah. So Özgen, for example, he's a wonderful example of, of Nouveau Turkish and Didem, who started as a classical Oriental dancer, but now she's learning so many uh, she's expanding her vocabulary so much in, into other aspects of Oriental dance that I would say she does Luzo Turkish Oriental
1: I, uh, to be honest, had no idea about this term MCAB that it's kind of abbreviation for American cabaret style (laughs) so that was new, I was like okay, what was that Um, but it's also interesting how like um, you kind of defined the vintage oriental because I was uh, even thinking to ask you what exactly you mean by vintage oriental because many dancers would kind of associate it with golden era style and uh, those uh, influence but then it kind of goes a little bit further from egyptian style in this case
0: (laughs) well dance is always changing and and morphing and uh, it's always it's influenced by so many things um uh politics and religion and history and wars and racism and um Fashion and and lots of different uh, trends, and so um, and and there's no place where you can see a better example of that than if you look at the Egyptian um, uh, branch of the Oriental dance tree, and you you look at um, the dancers from the thirties compared to the forties and the fifties and the sixties and and so on, and so people um, have tried to um, um, classify Egyptian in terms of um, with with terms like golden era and modern Egyptian, and um, people don't even always agree on what is golden era and what is modern Egyptian, um, uh, but uh, there. Uh, and even the dance that you see now is is quite different from what a lot of people called modern Egyptian. So um, people, I think we feel a need to find a definition for the different eras of dance styles, um, just so we can kind of keep it straight in our minds. Um, with vintage Oriental, um this was a, a a fusion form in the truest sense of the word fusion, because we were uh, bringing in some Moroccan hip articulation and, and um, um, we used to do a Sultan act, which was like a comedy act where you bring a guy up to the stage and you put a veil on his waist and you teach him some dance moves and it's supposed to be funny and it should be funny or you shouldn't be doing it. Um, And, um, Um, we did floor work, which had been illegal in Egypt since 1952, I think, or 51. And so, um, there, there were, there were elements that we brought from lots of different, uh, things and, and there was the American kind of wow, uh, factor, um, that, um, Uh, where you just, you, you burst on the stage and you, and you, um, there's a wow factor. I'm not sure there's, there's a, a vivacity to it, um, that is really exciting for people. Um, so, um, uh, I didn't like the term American cabaret because truly the only real American cabaret dance, in my opinion, is the dances that that came out of of Las Vegas hmm. because those were cabarets and those were Americans and those were American uh, choreographers and uh, and uh, the American vavavoom that was um, that's wonderful and it's it's great. And I also thought Amcab sounded like you were like hailing a taxi, you know, oh, Amcab, (laughs) Amcab, you know. But everybody likes abbreviations now, so that name stuck. But I thought that Vintage Oriental was a a better name because it was from what I would regard as the vintage era of Oriental dance um, in America um, that was thriving in the... 50s and the 60s and the 70s and, and even the 80s, when, when there were so many immigrants who were coming to this country from other places, and they needed a, a place where they could sit in a club and eat the food that was familiar, hear the languages that were familiar, smell the food, uh, and, and, and uh, hear the, the music um, of their homeland. And so it was a melting pot, truly a melting pot. And the the dance became also a fusion of many different styles.
1: And... uh if you keep talking about uh, dance terms (laughs) and trying to put uh, uh, dance in certain styles, um, how would you describe in general the dance concept that you are teaching uh, now to your students? Because I know that you uh, not only have a ballet dance studio you actually now uh, have online classes too, especially during the (laughs) COVID-19 period Uh, so how would you describe if someone is uh, uh about to come to your class what can they expect would it be something closer to a vintage oriental style or you're doing sort of a blend of different things and what is the main accent in your dance classes
0: okay well i um i'm glad you asked that uh <laughs> because i just started teaching online classes uh, two months ago and um the whole technical aspect of it is really um, new, new to me, um, but I've been talking about doing it for a long time, and um, my, I, I have a Middle Eastern Monday class. Um, that I really describe as generic Middle Eastern dance. And so um, I am teaching the kind of material that is transferable into all of your different styles of dancing, even some of the tribal girls. And so I teach about how to transition from step to step and when and how to understand the music and hip articulation and beautiful arms and hands and... um, uh, in, improv skills. And, and that is, I want to teach people to become their own dancers. I don't want to teach people to become Artemis clones. Um, but I am starting a new series. Um, I, uh, and, and it's kind of funny how that happened because I was going to teach, uh, some Turkish, um, uh, dance classes online. Um, and I just wanted to add another, another um, weekly class. And then I, I have my five-day uh, Turkish intensive, which is 25 hours of instruction is five days. And it's very, it's an immersion program in Turkish Oriental and Turkish Romani. And I had to cancel it, it was supposed to be next month. And I thought, People started saying, "Well, can you do it online?" And I said, uh, "No, I really can't recreate the um, the feeling of the intensive online." But then I started thinking, "Well, I have a 40-page manual, so why don't I just start teaching from the manual and w- in a weekly way, and just teach everything I know." Uh, in my dance movement vocabulary, and all the history and culture is going to go in my book, which isn't finished yet. But for the technical, the the dance technique, and so um, I and I always wanted to do this, but I thought I, I thought I would wait until I was old, and then and then I realized, well, I'm you know I'll be 69 in November. Um, I guess maybe in the dance world, people might think that's old. I don't feel old. But I feel like this is the time to do it because everybody's studying online. So that is going to start, um, in June and I'm, um, and it's sold out before I even could even advertise it. I just told a couple of people oh, and it's that's awesome. Uh, it, it, I was happy to say that it sold out, but I, um, I, um, am recording it, uh, um, recording the instructional parts of it. And so that is going to be available to people. And I think that that is going to be the best thing that I can contribute to the future dance world, because what I'm teaching is classical Turkish oriental. And for a long, long time, I have felt like um, I was... uh, uh, struggling to preserve an endangered species, the classical Turkish dance. And, oh, because the other thing that happened in our belly dance world um, was that tribal came in and all the different offshoots of that, and that became uh, very overpowering um, to our dance uh, world. And so then even Egyptian style shrunk in its overall popularity and turkish style shrunk along with it so um i think it's it's important more important now than than ever to preserve the classical aspects of of turkish dance
1: Hmm. so soon we can expect a new online course
0: and a new book from you right Yes, yes. And I'm also going to do a teacher training and I'm going to do a series of little mini lectures about how to thrive, not just survive.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Uh, So before I ask our our final uh, traditional question of the podcast, uh, can you share, please? where can people actually follow you and follow all news about uh, your activities and all the new cool stuff that uh, is about to pop up (laughs) and uh, um, being shared with dancers? What is the best way for them to uh, see all that?
0: Oh, thank you. Um, Well, my website is www.artemismurat.com. So that's... Artemis, A-R-T-E-M-I-S-M-O-U-R-A-T is my last name, Murat. Um, and I'm, I'm on Facebook a lot. Um, I can't really accept um, new um, um, invitations from people to want to join because I, I keep topping out at the um, 5,000, then I have to delete people, and that always makes me feel bad. Um, but... Um, that's the best way to see what I'm doing is on on Facebook, and I'm just updating my website now to include the online classes because um, it's it's all really really new to me. Um, a lot of the workshops that I'm teaching and that all of us are teaching have been canceled or postponed. So, um, so the best way to uh, fi- to keep up with the newest things I think is from Facebook.
1: Well, I definitely will include uh, links to the show notes. So for everyone who is listening, you can find link to the website and a Facebook profile right there and easily connect. <laughs> and uh, I also um, wish you really wish you good luck with all this uh, new chapter of online thriving in dance, not just surviving and uh, very excited to see all the new uh, stuff. And of course, uh, thank you so much for uh, being uh, today with us and sharing your experience and knowledge like I feel we like there is so many more topics <laughs> to talk on and we just scratched uh, the surface of the things but the the um, The things that you shared and the stories that you shared, I feel really grateful for you to be so open to talk about them. And I'm pretty sure that many of our listeners also feel now inspired and feel connected and supported maybe in some struggles that they are not alone, realizing that they are not alone now. So thank you so much for being so open to speak about these topics and sharing your experience with us today.
0: (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you, too. Yeah, it's just delightful. And, and I was um, just saying, you're such a great interviewer. And you, you're so gracious and warm. And you, you have a, a, a knack for helping the, the person that you're interviewing uh, to open up and to be themselves.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And that's uh, very easy to do with such an amazing and talented artist who have so much to share. <laughs> so thank you so much for being, uh, uh, being now part of our podcast and this project. And uh, before I let you go, uh, I know it's just a uh, mid-time, midday uh, for you, so I'm pretty sure there's a lot of stuff uh, for you um, planned for today. But before I let you go, I want to ask you our final um, summary question, which uh, if you listen to some of the episodes, you might have heard and maybe you even prepared some answer, but I will be very curious to know uh, whatever it is. And the question is uh, what makes you fall in love with belly dance again and again so you keep doing it for so many years
0: Mm, I think that dance is a magical experience and I think that the the music is magical, and the movement is magical, and that it is it is healing and um, inspiring. And so, I think what makes me fall in love with it over and over again is is that it's it's magical in spirit, in a spiritual sense as well as in a metaphoric sense.
1: Grew up into a full fashion and lifestyle brand, which is called My Inner Dancer, an online store for passionate dancers. Things change, things evolve, but our premise remains the same. Inspired by ballet dance, created for life. Check it out at myinnerdancer.com and reveal your inner dancer to the world.